0: This week on Death of the Reader, a signed confession finally turns the whims of the story against Flex, and we'll be speaking with Daniel McMahon, writer on LA Noir, about making murder mystery video games. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds bringing you your murder mystery world tour, and we are back with the Benson murder case. Our detective, Philo Vance, is completely and utterly insufferable. Yeah. But you know, hey, that's just that's just how it
1: is. Isn't that like the biggest draw of the novel? certainly the most interesting Mm. thing going on, in my opinion. I don't
0: think if you were going to read all 12 Philo Vance novels that you'd be able to survive.
1: I couldn't imagine doing that. That would actually kill a man.
0: But for just one or two of them, it's amazing. Yes,
1: yes. I'm perfectly happy to dip in and see what Vance is doing and see how he can, you know, apparently pinpoint the suspect in five minutes, but then not say anything about it for the next, (laughs) what, week? How many Uh, days are we into this thing? (laughs) Oh,
0: I mean, there are dates at the start of each of the chapters, but I don't think that that changes at all how utterly insufferable the man is. I mean, let's look at, you know, the the early part of... We're discussing chapters 9 to 18 today. Yep, yep. And one of the early things that happens in this section of the book is he sits down and he has a discussion with Miss Platts, the housekeeper of our murder victim, Albert Benson. And he just... He just manages to woo her in such a short amount of time. He's such a lovely man, as well established
1: by the previous scenes. He, his, <laughs>
0: his, his, his supposed pleasantness puts her at enough ease to be yeah. able to break through the lies that she's been telling for the previous eight mm-hmm, chapters mm-hmm.
1: just because he's such a nice guy. I think the idea is that he's supposed to be like so like, psychologically adept that he can put on a front and, you know, Mm. he can examine her and he can see, you know, she's twitching her fingers. That means I had to move myself, I had to move my body in this direction to seem more welcoming. But it's just ridiculous coming from Vance, who we kind of hate at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that I know from uh, doing a bit of research on how body Mm. language works in these kind of cases, because I was fascinated as to how it would apply with this story, is that body language... You can see what's happening, but there are so many possible meanings to the signals yeah. that you're seeing that it's like voodoo to try and suggest yes. that you'd be able to know exactly what's going on. But that seems to be what Vance can do. He's just so good at it. He's, he's just such, perfect at everything. He's
1: the perfect detective in every way. Ugh. He's he's wealthy. He's, he's a good chatter. He knows how to psychoanalyze the local maid stuff.
0: Yep. I <laughs> mean, here's the thing, is that... If we were going to start getting into character flaws later down the line, mm. like if through the remaining eleven books in this franchise, yes. it was going to be that here's Vance at his absolute most perfect, and then book two we start to see those flaws come out appear. book three, and yeah. it, it starts to crumble, <laughs> and he has to slowly rebuild his character. It turns to but a on the age. I will wager <laughs> money that that is not what is no, going to happen. No,
1: it doesn't seem like <laughs> it. it.
0: Uh, uh, <sighs> Wright's
1: perspective is of this this sporting event between the detective and the and the criminal and I don't think that he would care about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, I mean, w- one thing is with the with Willard Wright's rules, which we discussed a bit this week, and there's a discussion on the podcast for mm-hmm. a bit more detail going through all 20 of them, but basically, as you say, it's all about the game of detective culprit, mm. and anything getting in the way of that, rubbish. Roll Get them. it out of here. Throw it away. Throw it in the bin. Yeah. yeah. Um, that said, though, I do think that the Benson murder case does inadvertently make a fairly effective deconstruction of the genre as a whole without making it seem like one, which I think is actually really appealing.
1: I'd love to hear you explain that, because that's not quite the expression that I got, but uh, I'd love to hear about that. Well,
0: basically Philo Vance's approach to detecting and mm. Willard Wright's approach to writing and uh, SS Van Dyne's approach to being a character or, which not, or a, not, not not being a character. Be. Nobody
1: addresses him at any scene, yeah, I don't think
0: it, it's fantastic.
1: It's it's um, awful.
0: But all of those things, every time that they're discussing how things are done, they're always talking about things that, you know, the police do or detectives do. Mm. And every single one of them is from another murder mystery. Yeah, yeah. Like some of them, they mention explicitly who it's from. Some of them, they don't. But I really like the way that the story goes, well, here's this trope. It's rubbish. Here's an alternative. Like there's this moment where... Vance sits down and he says that the whole thing of assuming that someone is guilty because of the way that they move around is mm. rubbish because they could be more guilty because they think they're going to go to prison for something they didn't do. That is
1: definitely, I, I see what you're getting at now. That is one of the uh, the kind of highlights of the novel that Vance, you know, when, you know, Markham, who may not be the culprit himself anyway, we'll get to that is running around trying to just find somebody to accuse because, ah, you see, I have found that they were in this location at the exact time, therefore they had the opportunity, mm. therefore we should convict them. And Vance is like, no, 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 maybe stay your hand, sir. Maybe we see all of the clues of this case. I do like that that's something that's the that thought is being put into. We're yeah. not just grabbing someone out of the blue and say, you're the culprit because of these flimsy reasons. Um, we can definitely see, even if Vance is insufferable, even if... Uh, you know, Mr. Wright is a little bit insufferable in his writing. Mm. Uh,
0: He knows what he's talking about. Absolutely. Mm. And I mean, that's one of the things that the rules do cover is that there's a whole bunch of tropes in there that he just says, this is why I think this doesn't work. And even though I disagree with a lot of them, he obviously (laughs) has seen them and has an approach, which I I think is totally fair. Like, I don't think there is another writer like Wright in the genre. And... You know, that's 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 awesome. Of course, the other thing about them being insufferable and old-fashioned mm. is the relationships and character dynamics in this novel are not to say non-existent, but almost openly not there. <laughs> like, there's this moment in Chapter 10 where Markham and Vance are having this discussion and, you know, riddle- ridiculing each other for what they think, and... Uh, Van Dyne makes the comment that I had always
1: noticed in the relationship of these two men that whenever either made a remark that bordered on generosity, the other answered in a manner which ended all outward show of sentiment. It was as if they wished to keep this more intimate side of their mutual regard hidden from the world
0: they clearly have such an interesting dynamic in terms of how they operate and the mm. story refuses to ever let it do anything other than just be them arguing yeah. Ah, uh, it's, it's very silly. I mean, one of the other things in terms of, like, this novel's suspending disbelief is that despite all of Van Dyne's rules and mm-hmm. these are the tropes you want to avoid, he still does that goddamn trope <laughs> of people going, Oh, yeah, no, I, 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 was, I was doing this. I wasn't here. I was over there. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously lying, but the truth is... Makes them seem more innocent than their lie. Yes. So yes. why are they doing it? And the story, as we were saying, like, with it addressing the tropes of the genre, does kind of play off that a little bit. Mm. But this whole thing where Miss Platt's is like, oh, yeah, Muriel was here six hours before the crime. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you just say that? She was protecting her her tea buddy you can't, uh, you can't turn in your tea buddy's feelings. If you've but, had a tea buddy, it's a bond of trust. Here's the thing: is that if she just told them, she would have made herself seem more innocent, and Saint Clair. But mm. because she lied, now she and Saint Clair are suspicious. Mm. Like, ah, uh, it frustrates me so, Hurts. It frustrates me so.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the. I mean, that's one of the many fun, somewhat insufferable tropes mm. of murder mystery where all the characters are lying, but it's not necessarily because they killed a person not necessarily though it may also just be that they killed a person yeah I mean Maybe they all killed a person
0: there's always the standard excuses as to why people do it and it's one of the things in this genre you just have to kind of go along with yeah but I was really hoping that someone like Van Dyne would be the exception sure and he let me down <laughs> um I I guess while we're talking about you know the the possible culprits and b- before we get into the actual discussion in the final part of the show mm-hmm. about who we think it is. I do find it very interesting the way that we start to deal with the Major and his involvement with the crime. Because mm. so far he's not really under suspicion, even though I think it's him. Um, he's been hardly in the story. He's barely even a character. No, he's more in the, he's more in the story than the other suspects. Don't even try me. Um, All right. What is, what is going on with the man?
1: I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's the killer or maybe he's just a man caught up in events beyond his control. Who knows? It's
0: just it's very peculiar. One might even assume that he could be guilty.
1: I would never suspect such a thing of the Major. Uh, He's an upstanding army guy, or but was.
0: The reason I bring this all up and the reason I accuse the Major here is that I really do like the way that we're going through our possible suspects, the way that we're pointing at each of them and saying, like, well, here's all of the interesting aspects that make them possible, and slowly kind of making each of the possibilities tick off the list as that's not reasonable, that's not reasonable, that's not reasonable. Mm. And the pace at which we're doing it is really nice to the point where I think that if you didn't know about Van Dyne's rules, you could be pointing in any direction right now in the story, Mm. and I really like that. Yeah, it's very well done. Either way, right now it's time to chat with Daniel McMahon, and we'll be back just after that, with a discussion of who we think the culprit is, Herds... Who could it be? It could be anyone. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. This is Flex and Herds on the air with Mr. Daniel McMahon, writer and voice talent for the game L.A. Noir, created by Australian game developers Team Bondi. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me, Flex. Now, a bit of a free question to start off. As part of the writing team for L.A. Noire, what kind of mystery stories and crime fictions do you see most reflected in your written adaptations of uh,
2: of crime and noir? The most fascinating thing about L.A. Noire, um, which has been out in the press for a while, is that almost all of the stories in it were based on real newspaper material mm. um, gathered from our extensive... Archive that we kept. We had a copy of the LA Examiner and the Herald Express for every day from uh, December 1946 through January 1948. I'm impressed that they kept that all archived. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Honestly, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't there for the very early stages where they went around Los Angeles. The the production crew um, went around mm. just pillaging film studios and, wow. and archives and those sorts of things. So. As as weird and wonderful as the stories in LA Noire get and as convoluted as the mysteries get, they're all true. The very first case in LA Noire where a man um a man's car is discovered in a rail yard mm. completely drenched in blood yeah. and then you know human the, blood, of course. Well, no no, the, the detectives learn uh discover the so, so you've played I have played it. I played it with my mother. Long story. Fantastic. <laughs> keep it on you. No, fantastic. <laughs> well, one of the things we learned about L.A. Noir was that it was a very, very good uh, couch game. It yeah. was it was a, the the equivalent of watching uh, seasons of television. Yeah, it definitely has a very a very movie vibe. Yeah, um, very much. The characters around
1: and the interrogations, um, the camera cutting back and forth between the the suspect and the and the interrogator and that sort of
2: mm. thing. That story of the, of the man's car being discovered completely drenched in blood and the butcher's receipt found in his trunk and it turning out that he had splashed pig's blood all over his car in order to leave his wife and run away with his mistress is completely true. <laughs> it, was new, it was in the newspapers in 1947. It was, you know, followed in the sort of, um, you know, salacious way that these sort of newspaper stories will be. All of those cases are real. They culminate in references to the murder of Elizabeth Short, the yep. famous case of the Black Dahlia. Yep. Uh, L.A. Noir posits a fictional um, serial killer who's responsible for all of those murders and obviously, you know, in the game you have to be able to confront that killer and blow their head off like a, any good video game. Of but course. What else would you do? Yeah. <laughs> in real life, those murders continued mm-hmm. um, all the way into 1948 and one of the later victims, was a woman uh, by the name of, if I'm remembering it correctly, um, Geneva Hilliker, who is the mother of the famous neo-noir author James Elroy. If you've ever wondered why James Elroy is such a weird and wild and damaged person, it's because his mother was a murder victim in in mid-40s Los Angeles and, you know, suffered at the hands of the, possibly at the hands of the um, man who killed Elizabeth Short, who, as we know... Was never caught.
1: Yeah, I was doing a little bit of research on that. Uh, there were some thoughts that he was kind of projecting the unresolved emotions from his uh, from his mother's murder when he was ten years old. Mm. Um, uh, reports in the Times say that his first reaction was, "Oh well, good, I get to live with my father." But the <laughs> fact that he continues to write about you know the Black Dahlia murder, mm. I feel like there's more to it than that. There's some emotion there. There's some some things that he's trying to move move forward through through writing.
2: Absolutely, the the Black Dahlia of the um, the LA Quartet, as it's called, mm. uh, which starts with the Black Dahlia. That is an extraordinary book because it is exactly as you say, basically a, a love letter and a hate letter to his absent mother. And yeah. the emotions that the two detectives in that book go through in, you know, struggling to yeah. process what's happened to this woman, yeah, for sure. I imagine, are, are the same ones he went through.
1: So. Dan, what are some of the difficulties you found when uh, attempting to adapt a murder mystery to, to video game format?
2: Well, first I should say that um, I was not the I, I was a staff writer on L.A. Noire. I was the primary writer, so all the credit for the um, uh, wonderful drama in that script goes to Brendan McNamara, who was the writer director of the game. But um, the difficulties that he experienced, and certainly I experienced as well, are. Uh, just to move more broadly to video games for a second, sure. I think the problem of adapting murder mystery to video games makes you kind of confront a distilled version of all the problems of video games, right? You have all the problems of player agency. You have all the problems of um, sequential action. You have all the problems of when to present information to people and where, what they have access to and what they can do. We had all of these um, glorious plans in L.A. Noir to make it a true open world detective game. Mm. But, you know, you're kind of in direct conflict when, as we know from crime fiction, the entire art and artistry of crime fiction is what order you present the clues. Mm. And the very, very skillful doling out of of clues is basically the entire morbid appeal of crime fiction. So how do you reconcile that Mm. with a video game where ideally you should be able to find whatever you like and speak to whoever you like and say whatever you like to them?
1: Yeah, I, I think that it was a very impressive feat to, to attempt to create an open world like that. The, um, the game that I always come back to when I think about murder mystery fiction, it's what got me interested in the genre to begin with, not a novel, I know this is heresy to many, but <laughs> it was a, a video game by the name of The Last Express. It was made mm. in, or released in 1997. Have you heard of it? Have you? I have heard of it. I've not played it. Oh, it's it's a real gem. Mm. It's a bit rough, but it's a gem. It's John um, Mekna, right? It's the Prince of Persia guy. Yes, yes, yes that is exactly who it is. Um, the, the thing about The Last Express was that it, it came out in 1997, but the studio was going bankrupt at the time. So the first team to go was the marketing department. That's why nobody <laughs> has heard of it or played it. But it's uh, the way that the team decided to get around these problems of agency and, as you say, time and presenting clues sequentially, um, is that the game is constricted to a very narrow play area. There are mm. only four cars in this train that the game set on the Orange Express. Mm. There are these four cars that set on. And the actors or the characters in the game, they, they run on a schedule. Mm. So the clues in the game that you can run across will only happen at certain times. And if you're not in there at that time... You'll miss the conversation completely, you'll miss those clues. And that's totally fine. The game has a rewind mechanic. Wow, So there yeah, that's how they kind of tried to address that issue. Mm. I find it fascinating.
2: Ah, absolutely, yeah. it's fascinating. It, it's such an elegant solution to the problem of open world video game, geography to literally set your game in a corridor. Yeah. Yeah, a big corridor that with wheels that rolls along. Absolutely <laughs> long yeah. track. Yes, it's but, fascinating. Uh, but um obviously we didn't have that luxury in L.A. Noir because we had in, yeah. the entirety of of Los Angeles to explore. And yep. the the other part of it is one mm-hmm. of the one of the design decisions on L.A. Noir was that people should not be able to dead end themselves either in conversation or in their investigation. And it sounds as though the last express you can
1: you can absolutely. Mm. Uh, some of the best moments in the game, though, are when you dead end yourself. There's mm. there's one particular moment I'm thinking of late towards the, towards the end of the game where you, you seem to have solved a deadly problem and a man says, let's go get some tea. And if you go to that man and have tea with him because you've missed all the other signs that there's more problems on the train you'll just you'll just die hmm. it will just completely destroy you <laughs> and it's a quite humorous moment yeah, yeah um, i
0: suppose i suppose that also reflects older style video game design where it was a lot more about just going at it again and again and again until you had that perfect run
2: for hmm. sure for sure and i think the other part of it is as an as a writer or a reader you have to reach a place of equanimity with the fact that some people may not get the best version of your story Mm. Which is a very difficult place to get to, <laughs> I think, when you've worked so hu- when you've worked so hard, particularly when it comes to murder mystery and crime fiction, when yeah. you've worked so hard to put together all the moving pieces of your plot, it's terribly mm. frustrating. Yeah, when-
0: I mean, one of the things that I always put out there as the best feature of crime fiction and particularly murder mystery is that you can read it again in second time and it's basically a different book mm. because you see all the clues looking out in front of you. Do you think that that's a similar experience in how you can present it in video games or would that just not gel in terms of people trying to make so many different actions on a replay?
2: Ideally, we want to move towards this, this place where the replay value in a video game murder mystery is that you can come closer and closer to the truth mm. each time unfortunately in a game like la noir i don't know there's plenty of there's plenty more conversation to be had there's plenty more um freaky digital faces to look at yeah but uh the fact that we had to bring so much back to that kind of linear path means that perhaps the the replay value was damaged but it's a wonderful dream to have this sort of you know it sounds like the last express might be something more in that in in line with that that there is more, more conversation to be found, more character to be found, and perhaps, you know, perhaps the the, the replay value in the thing is that on a single playthrough you may not solve the crime.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader. This was Flex and Herds with Daniel McMahon. Thank you for uh, chatting with us today, sir.
2: No, oh, thank you very much for having me. That was lots of fun. It's excellent. We'll be back
0: in just a second with more on the Benson murder case.
1: you are listening to Death of the Reader on Two a CR where Flex and Hurts finally aiming at the heart of this case, hunting for the culprit with the precision of a Vance-shaped scalpel. Flex. Yes. It's time for your, your final verdict, your time to pin the tail on the donkey, as
0: it were. Oh, How you feeling? I'm going very well. We are discussing chapters 9 to 18 of the Benson murder case by SS Van Dyne, and mm-hmm. it is time to talk solutions, mm-hmm. as Herds implies. Now, it's a very interesting position we're in. Yeah, We've just had a confession. We've just had a confession. We've just
1: figured out who the killer is. It was I guess Lecoq I was all wrong along. all along. Yeah, it was Lecoq. What a shame. That bumbling fool. What a what a fool. Who would have thought that he'd be capable of killing, despite uh, being of a military background? Such a thing. Having a weapon that he's tossed in the, in the river? He has the motive. He has the means. He has the wit, I assume. There he's are, just confessed.
0: two and a half suspects right now in the case. Two and a half? <laughs> yes. Who's the half? Uh, the half is Fife.
1: Oh, I see.
0: Uh, because we have the Major, mm. we have Leacock, mm-hmm. both of those two have access to the army cult, which is suspected to be the weapon by yes. one Hagedorn, who I assume to be correct because we are <laughs> told by the rules of Van Dyne that they are reliable. Unless they're not. I'm sorry, herds They're reliable. What? I went back over the rules again. Because I was a little confused after last week's ending where you suggested to me that Markham was going to be the grandmaster schemer. Which he the is, end of obviously. Of Which, whilst very entertaining, I realized that the servant's rule was in fact separate from the de- detective's mm. and in- official investigator's rule. You think, that, you think that that rules Markham out? He's an official investigator,
1: so he I can't be does. the culprit? I'm
0: sorry. <sighs> now, we have those two suspects, Leacock and the Major, and we have Leander Fife, mm. who is... Uh, low life, according to the Major. Bit of a gambler, yeah. Bit of a gambler. Mm, according to the Colonel's game. Yeah. Which points at us as he's a good shot. He is. Has strong wits, mm. but apparently not perfectly strong, which is why I don't suspect him. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, his shot is like a 7. Well, here's Needs the thing. Needs to be an 8. It is, ought to be suspicious. In the scene where we discuss... The Uh gambling of Fife. Vance specifically ends the scene by going, oh, goodness, what an excellent, you know, eliminator of suspects Colonel Ostrander was. Mm. And everyone else is like, what are you on about, Vance? The only thing of substance that the colonel said was that he was a gambler, but not a very good one. (laughs) The only thing of substance.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He did waffle on quite a bit. I think that was his only defining character trait that he waffled for hours.
0: Which, which, you know, it it made for a decently compelling scene. But as far Mm. as assigning a culprit, I think that that, outright ruled out Fife in my mind, Mm -hmm. which means that we're stuck with the two military characters, and here we are with the signed confession from one of them. Yeah. Now, first of all, we open the scene by saying that there's no legal weight to the signed confession at all, so therefore there is no weight to the confession at all, putting that out on the table. (gasps) Who made Leacock write the confession? Why Why did he write a confession in the first place? Why even bother? It doesn't make any sense. Like... It has no legal weight. It could be forged. It could have been, you know, written under duress. It wasn't written with a legal notary. All of those things aside, it's incredibly strange. I
1: mean, we do have the uh, the circumstance of the strange telephone call between uh, himself and one Sinclair. You think yeah. that might be related? I know that Van Dyne says there must be no love in the story, but... My,
0: my initial suspicion is that Leacock has been told to write the confession with the hopes that he can prove his innocence and avoid the electric chair because mm. that's the threat that's dangling over us in this, in this murder mystery for our culprit. I don't think that we've had enough reasons to see why they'd need to have anything covered that couldn't be covered better by being innocent. Mm. Um, so I don't think it makes sense. I'm sure you could drag something out like they're trying to cover for some deal they're doing, but I don't think that it's worth the approach they're taking. So you're saying that you don't know? You're saying that you've you've given up on why Lecoq has come forward? No, I'm just saying that it doesn't make any sense, which is why I don't <laughs> suspect him. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's my argument for the major that I'm making here, not okay. that I'm trying to avoid making accusations at anyone else. Fair enough. Fair because enough. it's the major. Let's be completely honest. Why
1: here. is the major? I don't understand. All he's done is be helpful. This entire novel, he's just kind of showed up every now and then and said, "Hey, where was this person? You know, they're not doing much. They ain't hurt nobody."
0: So our evidence with the major mm-hmm. is that the culprit must have been a crack shot. Mm-hmm. The culprit must have had a nerves of steel. The culprit must have been someone known and comfortable to Alvin Benson. must have be about five foot ten, must have been about five foot ten. <laughs> and we are also told by Benson's secretary that the major has no honor. Mm. Which, considering how everyone else in the story talks about him, is extraordinarily suspicious that his closest business connection, his secretary, who deals with all of his dealings, would suspect the man. You're saying that she, she knows something more, or that she's... I'm not saying that they know what's happened. However, we do have that whole discussion of them listening to each other's rooms, clearly not getting along. Mm. What is the point of all of that if it isn't relevant? Mm. You think that
1: these strange whisperings, these eavesdroppings on each other, is, is there's something, something
0: funky going on in the business? Absolutely. Mm. I think that whatever is happening, I'm assuming it's some business deal or some, you know, maybe the whole reason that Leacock has written this confession is over a business deal because Sinclair seems to be a business associate that the major isn't happy with mm. because it's under Clair's name. He doesn't know that it's connected to his former, you know, underling in in his unit leacock Mm. who he seems to have a very high opinion of so he's basically killed his brother over a business deal with one of his favorite subordinates and has now realized oh no i've just lumped suspicion onto my favorite subordinate and is trying to slowly claw his way out of the pit of despair that he's dug himself and when he pokes his head above the top suddenly everyone will realize it's the major at least that's my theory it is a it is an interesting theory
1: i like it the major He's a good boy, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe he's in over his head. Maybe he's he's not as honorable as uh, most most characters might might see on the outside. Mm. Um, but uh, I want to I want to posit something slightly different to you. What's that? Because I think, sir, that you you have missed the obvious the obvious answer here, as always. Because that's just how this show is. You're always missing the You're obvious, always legs. missing the obvious. Thing. That's just how it is. It's like your one character trait that exactly. everybody remembers. It's not show. like
0: I'm the only one with any points on the board. No. <laughs> <laughs> So,
1: I want to posit the theory that, um, as you say, it, it has to be one of these. One of these army folks it has to be the uh, Lecoq or uh, Major Benson there, or Colonel Ostrander,
0: I suppose,
1: or Colonel Ostrander. But he was only there for one scene. I don't think it's fair for me to argue for him at all. But maybe Lecoq's done the killing, and he's realised that all of these these business dealings with uh, with the major. And St. Clair are coming up, and he's he's signed this confession. He's trying to bring his own crime to light to keep
0: everybody out of it. So you are suggesting, you are suggesting to me... Yes. ...that the Major, St. Clair, Mm -hmm. Alvin Benson, Mm -hmm. and Leacock are all in some mafioso backroom deal. basically, And that Leacock has been asked to take the fall.
1: I don't know that he's been asked to take the fall. Maybe he's just because he's a chivalrous good boy. Maybe Major Benson has said, like, yo... Don't do that, and and Lecoq's like yo, but I have to.
0: I see. He's- this
1: is my duty as a man who loves a woman and has mm. many good friends. He's he's you know he's he's, he's you know taken uh, Alvin into the back room. And he's plugged around him. He said, you know, I gotta I gotta take responsibility for this now. Basically, ah, I
0: see, I see. Mm.
1: And this isn't a real mafia. Let's be let's be clear. I'm not. I'm not stepping on Van Dyne's rules here. There's no secret organizations. Damn, you caught the hole. I was because about to poke I know because I know you were about to say that, and I'm familiar with the rules, sir. I don't know what number it is, but I'm familiar with the rules.
0: However, I want to post you something slightly different, Hertz. Uh huh. I don't think that that's the direction the story is going to go. I reckon in the next chapter or two, we're going to immediately be rid of any suspicion on Captain Leacock. Well, it is time for the uh, cross-examination. It is indeed. It is indeed. I suppose that over the last few chapters, we are in fact going to draw more suspicion on Leander Fife. Mm. Because we know that it is his car that was seen at the scene of the crime. It's true. I don't actually have a particularly great explanation for why that is. I was about to ask. I will concede that. (laughs) I did not spend nearly enough time looking at Leander Fife because I do not think he is involved... Are you telling me? In a worthwhile way, shape, or form. Are you
1: telling me that you don't know everything about this story? Absolutely. By this point? I absolutely don't. By the second part of the story, you don't know everything? Well, that's like minus a billion points, obviously. (laughs) Come on, now. I expect more of you.
0: So I suppose that the final question is going to come down between the Major and Leander Fife. And it's going to be the Major Hurts.
1: We'll we'll have to see what happens uh, next time on Death of the Reader.
0: Yes, we will be going to the end of the Benson murder case. And you can tune in to find out what we're covering next next week this is Death of the Reader on 2SER thank you so much for joining us we'll see you next time